Thank you for listening to Knocking Doors Down, brought to you by KDD Media Company. I never looked at it for what it really was, which was a full-blown addiction. I just looked at it like a necessary evil to be the best center that I could be, to be to, to feed my family playing a kid's game. Here at Knocking Doors Down, we share the stories of people who overcome adversity. You know that already, but what you may not know is that our partners at the Carlos Vieira Foundation aim to help people who struggle with their own adversities as well. The Carlos Vieira Foundation helps those in need through their Race for Autism, Race to Be Drug-Free, and Race to End the Stigma campaigns. You can also choose the Carlos Vieira Foundation as your charitable organization on Amazon Smile to contribute as well. To learn more and support these causes, check out all the info at carlosvierafoundation.org. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast, all about those who have gone through some adverse situations and used it to fuel a positive way of living. Of course, your host, Jason Chance. I'm no different. Alcoholic, been through some uh, adverse childhood situations and trauma. My co-host, Mikey, not too different either. Yeah, I've got myself busted a time or two. What are you going to do? That's right, my brother. And of course, uh, our guest today, Randy Grimes, former 10-year NFL veteran. Wrong team, though. <laughs> yeah, he played for the Buccaneers. Not when they were good. Yeah. Not like in the last year or so, but uh, an awesome guy. He's not only helping pro athletes uh, who have faced addiction issues overcome uh, those situations and live a sober life, but also goes out and speaks. Randy Grimes speaks. Uh, click on the links in the podcast description. Get more on him. Just an awesome guy. Oh, yeah. Great talker. You guys are about to find out. And uh, we can't do any of this without 5150 LTM. All the swag that Mikey and I wear when we're out doing interviews. You see us on social media, the YouTube channel. Well, that is what brings to life the Knocking Doors Down podcast. So, hey, do us a favor. Check the swag out. Click that link in the podcast description. Use the code KDD20. Pick yourself some up and uh, keep supporting what we do. What was the code? That's KDD20. Use it now. Dope. Randy Grimes, thank you for joining us. Good, sir, on Knocking Doors Down. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity, guys. Heck yeah. I mean, come on. It's not every day we, we speak to a 10-year vet of the NFL, you know, both football fans. He's the fanatic. I'm just a normal fan. Wrong team, though. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but, uh, of course, Randy played for uh, 10 seasons with the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, so pretty cool to, you know, the team he spent uh, shed blood on the field for, getting that Super Bowl. That had to be pretty badass. Oh, it was, man. I was so excited. You know, when they signed Brady, I didn't know what he was going to bring physically. Same. You know, I mean, Same. what is this, his hundredth year in the league? <laughs> I, was I didn't say. know what, he's, what he still had left in the tank, but I knew he'd sell a lot of tickets and I knew that he would bring a lot of optimism and confidence. Sure. And then Gronk, and, they bring in Gronk. So that was like, oh gosh, now what are they going to do? Yeah, I mean, but these are guys that have been there before, and they know what it takes. And to go out and win those three big road games in the playoff on the road, you that know, was huge. that was huge. And once they did that, I, you know, I, I, I was predicting at the Super Bowl all week that they were going to win by, you know, a couple of touchdowns. So, you know, it, it worked out really good, and, and and I think that that's what makes Brady Gronk worth every penny that they pay him is that. Because I know as a former offensive lineman, man, I wanted to come back to the huddle to a quarterback that was confident sure. and in charge. And, you know, guys like DeBerg and, and Steve Young, you oh, know, yeah. I wanted to come back and, and have those guys as my captain. And uh, it makes a big difference. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, too. When I heard that there or when I seen that they were playing the Chiefs, I'm a Niner fan and the Chiefs obviously did me dirty last year <laughs> so i wanted the bucks to just beat the piss out of them and they did so i i was rooting for your team as well <laughs> well that's probably why we won then yeah it was definitely all me so i feel like i should get if not a ring some kind of 10 percent or something i don't know yeah, yeah no. I'll, I'll i'll make sure they send you a ring okay? <laughs> you know what i would appreciate that randy i knew i liked you <laughs> yeah would you would you wear it to oh. say a friend i mean yeah. I, you know you would. You know you would. 
I wouldn't worry just could be afraid of somebody wanting to steal it. That's all me. It'd be like, oh, that goes in a case at home in like a shadow box. I might wear it, man. I might wear it. Anyways, we're not talking with Randy just to bullshit about football, although we probably will more throughout because, boy, we got to know what it was like having a a 10-year, decade-long career. But, of course, you're doing great work with uh, Randy Grimes Speaks. More people find out randygrimespeaks.com. You know, and you're really highlighting – that uh, based upon your own personal story, you know, those injuries and things that pile up in a profession and definitely, a, you know, a different day and age, which we want to ask you, you know, some of your thoughts later on about, you know, the rule changes, um, especially to protect players, but led to you having an opioid addiction, uh, you know, and boy, uh, how did how, how did it just start? Was it just nagging injury over nagging injury and and or was it post-career that the injuries were still present or a combination of both yeah i can remember uh being a rookie and getting to the locker room in tampa bay and i was having a conversation with leroy selman he had a locker right next to mine and you know he was a legend that was a guy that i had followed all the way from oklahoma while he played at oklahoma to the box you know i was a a kid in Waco, Texas, Texas football, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember having a conversation with him. He was like one of the first big time vets that I ever just, you know, had had a, a talk with. And I remember him, the first thing I learned from him is that football wasn't a game anymore. It was now a job. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as I stepped foot in that locker room as a second round draft pick of the Bucks, it, it became a job. Sure. And, the, and the second thing I learned was that you do whatever you have to to stay out on the field because, I mean, guys, this is back in the era where that warrior mentality where you big boys don't cry, you dust right. yourself off and get back in the huddle and you keep your mouth shut. Sure. You know, this is back when we were beating the hell out of each other all week long, and hopefully we had a little enough left in the tank on Sunday to play because if you don't practice hard, you're not going to play hard. That exactly. mentality, yeah. that junction boy bullshit mentality mm-hmm. that cost so many guys back in my era their careers. Uh, so you, what, what that looked like for me doing whatever I had to to stay out on the field was taking handfuls of pain pills every day to practice through the injuries and through the – the, uh, the, the, the pain and uh, uh, just the knocks and bruises of everyday practice, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I never looked at it for what it really was, which was a full-blown addiction. I just looked at it like a necessary evil to be the best center that I could be, to be, right. to, to feed my family playing a kid's game, you know, to, to be all pro, to be that neck, to get that next big contract. You know, it was a necessary evil. And, and, you know, I'm getting it from team doctors and team trainers, so it must be okay, right? Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. I'm getting it from teammates, so it must be the culture of the league. So, you know, I never looked at it for what it really was, and that was a full-blown addiction. Yeah. Well, and, and like you said, yeah, getting it, it from the team, of course, it, team doctors, but, yeah, just a totally different mentality, and I'm sure – and we're not asking you out anyone, but you weren't the only one in the locker room that was operating that way, let alone in the league. No, and if you've ever seen North Dallas 40, that's what I kind of compare it to. It's that North Dallas 40 mentality. You know, I wasn't the only one willing to do whatever I had to to stay out on that field. And, you know, if, if, you, if you weren't staying out on that field, somebody else was going to be in your position, yeah. first of all. Second of all, you were going to get a reputation of always being on the injury report, always being worked on by the trainers, always in line to see the doctor. And I was not going to be that guy because that's a reputation you were never going to get away from in what was sure to be a short NFL career. So, you know, I suffered in silence and I threw down pain pills every day. And, you know, I would come home at night and crash on the couch because it wasn't unusual. Mm-hmm. We just got through beating the hell out of each other in 110-degree heat in Tampa, Florida, on the practice field next to the airport with jet fumes everywhere. And coming home and crashing was not a sign to my family that anything else was going on. And, and you know, I was also taking handfuls of benzos every night to oh, get to sure. sleep, mm-hmm. you know, through that through everything that was going on. And so, you know, that these are just ways that I justified it. This is ways that I hid it from my family. And, 
you know, what's, what's kind of incredible is that in the eight and a half, nine years that this was going on, you know, not once did anybody ever say, Randy, why are you slurring your words or nodding off in meetings or late to practice every day? Or why are you the last to leave the building every night and pills are missing out of the drug safe? Nobody ever questioned me on that because I was always playing my ass off. We used to have a drug safe in the middle of our training room and it was never locked. I mean, you could always just go get whatever you wanted out of there. And if it ever was locked, we had three white guys for the, the entire decade that I played in Tampa, three white guys started on defense and their Jersey numbers were the combination to the safe. So that never changed. And, uh, but you know, I usually didn't even have to do that. I could just ask for it and I'd get enough till the next day. I'd ask again, get enough for the next day. And that was pretty, um, that was uh, pretty much the routine back then. Go ahead. Oh no. So when this, you know, when we used to, I tell this story all the time, what other profession, when we used to on our road trips back on the plane, We'd have a trainer that would walk down the aisle and he had a medicine. He had two medicine bottles in his hand. You know, one of them was an opiate, one of them was a benzo. And then there'd be another guy behind him with two beers and they would hand everybody whatever they needed, whatever they asked for. And then they would hand you two beers. When we were leaving our locker room, this is back in the eighties, you know, eighties and early nineties. When we were leaving our locker room after a Sunday afternoon game, there would be somebody standing there with a pill bottle, pouring out pills in people's hands, handing you two beers also as you left the building and you had your car keys in your hand. What other occupation does that? You know, (laughs) rocks. I was going to say music. Maybe (laughs) I don't blame the NFL. I don't blame the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It was just the mentality back then. That's just how it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it was. A complete lack. That's how it was. Of education. It probably was like that at San Francisco. It was probably like that at the Raiders. It was probably like that everywhere. Yeah. So a complete lack of education during the times of the effects of these types of medications, let alone addiction. You know, it still carried a lot of stigma at that time. You know, even even 40 years after AA was originated uh, that, you know, and it was looked at as probably a weakness, I would think, especially in that time and day and age. Yeah, but you know what? It wasn't even about that. It was about. You know, nobody ever thought about that. It was about getting back out on the field. It was about playing as hard as you could for as long as you could. It was about not giving up your spot. You know, it was about you're only as good as your last game. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of that kind of, you know, nobody ever. People didn't ask me about nodding off and and, and slurring words because, yeah, they were probably uneducated at the time. But it was about Randy still playing good, so why 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 rock the boat? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, it's not broke, don't fix it, kind of thing. <laughs> and you were in a hell of a position, of course. A lot of the the stuff that maybe we'll ask uh, your take on a little bit later on in the conversation. Uh, you know, being a sinner, a lot of that heads up stuff, and of course, concussions were looked at totally different at that time too. You know, I remember getting them uh, when I was an athlete in high school in the '90s. Got one, and it was. Ah, you got your bell rung. You know, nobody right. looked at it to, to that regard. So, like you said, the mentality was just totally fucking different than it is now. Yeah. I mean, the, what, what the concussion protocol was back then was, you know, how many fingers am I holding up, you know? Right. If you could get within five right, then they put you back out on the field. You know, one time up at the Silverdome, I got knocked out so bad that I walked off the field and sat on the Lions bench, and their <laughs> doctor sent me back into the game. So there wasn't much of a protocol back then. Well, the Lions probably would have loved to have you, so that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's. You're right. You're probably right. <laughs> let's let's jump back to uh, to young Randy. Uh, you know, growing up and kind of going through college. Of course, you played at uh, Baylor. And, but uh, what were you like as a kid? Was football? You you know, Texas. Uh, you know, it is a football state. Was it uh, you know a family thing? And you know, what were you like as a kid? Were you rambunctious? Always involved in sports and activities. Uh, everything you just said, you know, I, I, 
I, I, I want to say football was religion, but of course, in East Texas, religion was a religion, but football was a close second. Mm-hmm. And everything in my family focused around me and my brother and, and football and, and even my sister. You know, she was a cheerleader. She was a majorette. She was on that football field at halftime. My parents were at every game, you know, and they're, and the thing about my parents is that I, you know, I had a great childhood and I never once saw my parents use any kind of substance, never saw them drink, never saw them take anything. Even my brother and sister, they never went down that road. There was, there was really no history of addiction in our family, maybe a distant uncle that I had never met, but you know, there was really no, uh, no history there. And so you know, I, I, I'm I'm kind of a unicorn in in that sense. You know, as far as I'm not coming from a, a family with a history of substance abuse, but um, yeah, man, I had a great upbringing. Football, Friday night lights, pasture parties, pickup trucks, girls. I mean, that was that was life in East Texas, and everything focused around football. And uh, you know, it, it was something that always came easy for me. You know, I was I was just good at football. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was able to um, get a scholarship pretty much anywhere in the Southwest Conference back then, anywhere I wanted to go, Arkansas, you know, A&M, Texas. And I chose Baylor. I had a sister there. Uh, I wanted to be in the good Southern Baptist that I, that I am. I wanted to make my mama happy. And I wanted to play for Grant Taft. I thought that was a great opportunity. Had some great players there. Singletary was there. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ronnie Barnes. We just had a lot of good players there at the time. And sure enough, we won the Southwest Conference my uh, sophomore sophomore year. Got crushed by Alabama in the Cotton Bowl. But we, we had a great team. And then the, uh, the, my, my freshman year, we won the Peach Bowl. So uh, we had some great players, and it, it was a great decision. And those were the best days of my life. I met my wife my very first day, my freshman year at Baylor. Went out that night, and then we got married after our junior year. So she was going to teach. I was going to coach. We were going to live that all-American dream. Right. And even in college, there was no history of substance abuse. Yeah, I'd have a beer or two with the guys every now and then. But most of the time, I was with her, a preacher's daughter, and uh, – we were just hanging out. See, that's what I was going to ask you. Playing in you know, high school and then going to Baylor, you're obviously playing at a very high level. No pain pills or anything like that ever came uh, into play until the NFL? Nothing, yeah. Oh, wow. Not until the NFL. Yeah. But you know what? The game picked up so much in the NFL. Sure, It sure, was yeah. much faster, quicker, stronger. Because it's the best smart. of everybody. Every college you've ever played, it's handpicked the best, and they're all thrown into the professional league. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and they're even on your practice fields. They're on your own teams. Mm-hmm. You know, They're on your practice squads, the, the best of the best. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you really had to up your game when you got out there or, or you weren't going to last very long. Right. Yeah, well, and like you said, I mean, that's it, because I, I wanted to ask how you met your wife, which she works, you you two work so close hand in hand and what you're doing. And, um, but uh, at what point then did, you know, you, you mentioned early on in your career, but uh, did you fastly, the, the two of you have a family, uh, you know, and the kids and stuff like that? And because and, you mentioned subsequently coming home, nodding out and the family just right. accepting it as normal. Yeah, I mean, I had kids and, you know, I, I wasn't expected to do much. I'd been practicing all day. I've been working my ass off all day on the practice field, you know, so she didn't really have great expectations that I was going to come home and spend two or three hours with the kids. You know, she knew the routine. She would see me, you know, she saw practice. She'd watch practice. She knew what we were going through. So, I mean, she she's the one who 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 did most of, of the raising of the kids back then because, you know, I was present, but I wasn't present. Sure, you know sure, what I mean? Sure. And, uh, you know, but she understood that, that that was part of the sacrifice that we make as to be professional players. And then, you know, I was gone a lot in the, during the season, but she also knew that the off season was coming and that she would have me for five to six months, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, were you able to, during that downtime, uh, steer away from the opioids, or was there a point, and the benzos, as you mentioned, or was there a point where it just became a daily repetitive habit? Yeah, I mean, the whole time it was a daily habit, you know. Mm-hmm. 
when I didn't have those trainers or drug safes or doctors at the team facility to hand it out, I would, you know, we would spend every off season in Houston and, uh, you know, I would always just find ways to, to uh, continue getting it, whether it was doctor shopping or having multiple doctors. I mean, I was Randy Grimes. I had a, I had a, um, a ring on my finger. I could walk in any, any doctor's office and get just about anything I wanted. I mean, I had x-rays, I had everything, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it was, it was all this, the, the, the manipulation that we as drug addicts do, uh, to get what we need. Yeah. No, I was curious about it. Cause I, then again, too, for people that maybe aren't getting the relevance, it's not how it is today where doctors it's electronically tracked in a way and who's, who's going into where, as well as your prescription, there are handwritten prescriptions. And a guy had the little pad with the needle that he put it on and went, okay, Mr. Grimes got it from Dr. So-and-so and doctor, you know, they didn't monitor it the way it was. So it was probably, you know, much more readily available and easier for you to go through that process. Sure. And, you know, the pill mills existed back then. You could find doctors, you could find anything that you need. And, and, and you're right. The pharmacies weren't linked. The doctors weren't linked. And, uh, you know, it, it was the wild, wild west back then, not only in Texas, but in Florida. And uh, it only got worse and worse and worse, you know, as time went on. So starting it in your, you know, beginning of your career in the NFL, at what year, what point did you realize, shit, this is a problem? Uh, you know what? I had a, uh, in, uh, a couple years before I retired, I had a seizure on the beach one day. Mm-hmm. I'd had surgery on my shoulder. It was in the off season. Um, and anybody knows when you withdraw off benzos, you know, you're going to have a seizure and I had to get off the benzos to have the surgery. And I didn't have any clue yeah. that that would happen. That right. it, if I tried to get off of the, the halcyon that I was taking and uh, I had a seizure on the beach. And um, so they put me in the hospital. I just had shoulder surgery. They put me in the hospital. They thought it had something to do with the surgery. Something was going on. They tested me for a seizure disorder uh, to see if I had epilepsy. They had all these tests and nobody ever could figure out anything. So they just wrote it off to having something to do with the shoulder surgery. Mm-hmm. But the more research that I did on it and you know, this is back before you could just Google anything, you know, the more research I did on it, I realized that this had something to do with the benzodiazepines that I was taking to sleep every night. Mm-hmm. And I knew then that I had a problem, but I didn't know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. And when was I going to do it? And who was I going to tell and, and all that? So, you know, life just kept on. And, you know, I came back from that shoulder surgery. I was still playing good. And it was just life as normal. Well, and that's interesting you bring that up because I know that's that's three areas that uh, you, with the work you're doing through Randy Grimes Speaks, is prevention, education, and intervention. And you kind of hit them all there. It was, it, you know, it was almost unable to prevent it based on being within a culture that it was a norm. Where did you get the education and, and let alone how did you get help? So at what point was it a conversation with the missus, with family members where it was just like this is a problem look at what it's doing to me i got to get help were you still active in the nfl at that time as well no i mean guys we've got to fast forward to probably another 18 years before oh, i got to that point you know when i mm-hmm. i can still remember you know in the in the 80s and early 90s uh, tampa bay was a revolving door of players coaches front office people quarterbacks you know i i had five different head coaches in 10 years i had six different offensive line coaches i had uh 10 or 11 different quarterbacks and probably three different general managers the only consistent thing about the bucks in the 80s and early 90s was randy grimes the center somehow i seemed to survive every change uh, that they made but i can remember after the 92 season uh I was standing at my locker, and we had just played our last game. Obviously, we weren't going to the playoffs. And back then, you would come in the day after your last game. You'd have an exit meeting with your coach. You'd watch the film from the day before. You'd clean out your locker. And then you'd be gone for the next five or six months until minicamp started again. You know, that's how it was back then. Now it's more of a year-round job. Mm-hmm. But I remember after that last game, I was standing at my locker, and I remember Sam Weish walked by me. And I, I was looking at my locker, and I just felt somebody walk behind me. I felt somebody put their hand on my shoulder. I heard the words, Randy, we won't be needing your services anymore here in Tampa. And as I turned to look to see who that was that said that, I just saw Sam Wash. I had a door right next to my locker, 
And I saw Sam Weiss hit that silver bar in the middle of that door and exit out uh, to the coaches' offices. And I remember thinking, damn, is that how it ends? You know, all the – and I had hurt my foot halfway through that season. I, I couldn't even go try out for anybody else. I was 33 years old. I would played every, every down of every year of my career in Tampa. I knew football was over. And I just remember thinking – I just can't believe that it ends like this. All the blood, sweat, and tears that I've left on football fields all over this country since fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And that's this is how it ends. And I don't know how what I expected. I don't know if I thought I was supposed to get a parade or a street named after me or whatever, but I, I just didn't do it end like that. And I just remember raking everything out of my locker into a black trash bag and walking out the back door and Randy Grimes, the football player, didn't exist anymore. And, and the reason I talk about that is because I struggled for a long time, oh, many, imagine. many years transitioning out of football. When I didn't have that uniform to put on anymore or that locker room to sit in, I struggled. And I thought I was ready. I thought I was preparing every year for it. You know, you do these mental things where, yeah, I'm ready, I guess. You know, I'm tired of being banged up. But until it really happens, you don't know how you're going to handle it. And I struggled. And um, I tell that story because I already had this raging addiction going. And now this on top of it was just throwing gasoline on an already raging fire. And uh, I struggled for many years. I mean, the injuries just kept getting worse when I left the league. The chronic pain just kept getting worse. The tolerance kept getting higher. I needed more and more pills all the time. And it just was a snowball that I could never stop. And I had some great jobs. I had some great jobs when I got out of football, but I lost them all because of addiction. And houses and cars, great houses and cars, I lost them because of addiction, because I couldn't stop doing it. I I just couldn't stop. And I don't know, thinking back, yeah, there was still a lot of pride and ego, but it was mostly guilt and shame. You know, and in at the end, uh, in in the spring and summer of two thousand and nine, that's how long this went on. And I retired in in ninety three. You know, uh, seems like the perfect storm was coming. And you know, I, my wife had to. My daughter wouldn't let me come around my first grandchild. Oh shit! Uh, I wasn't fit to be around him. And um, my my wife, she didn't leave me, but she couldn't live with me anymore. So she moved in with her parents because she was loving me to death and she just couldn't, couldn't stand it anymore. You know, I, 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 I had a wife who loved me unconditionally. I had kids that loved me unconditionally until they couldn't stand me anymore. And, and, um, that perfect storm was, was happening in the spring and summer of 2009. And, and that was part of it. Uh, the death of my good friend in Tampa, Tom McGill, who I'd played with many years right next to me at right guard. He was out there doing the same thing I was doing, self-medicating his injuries. He got while he played in the league, and one morning he just didn't wake up. Uh, that got my attention. Um, and my wife was willing to make one more phone call for me. I was sleeping in the floor. Talk about guilt and shame. I was sleeping in the floor of a vacant house with no utilities. And I can remember laying in the floor of that house thinking, you know, I was a former All-American. I was a second-round draft pick. I was a 1988 NFL Man of the Year for the Buccaneers. I married my cheerleader, sweetheart, dream girl. I've got two great kids. And here I am laying in the floor of a vacant house with no utilities, no job, no car, no money. It took all of that for me to finally just say, you know what, I can't do this anymore. And who? She was willing to make one more call for me. And whoever she talked to that day in New York at the league office, they didn't have a program for retired players back then. Oh, okay. And whoever she talked to that day just knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. And that's how I got to treatment on uh, September 22nd, 2009. More with Randy Grimes coming your way. We'll talk about more on what he did through his sobriety and how he got there and those fun random questions. 
This episode of Knocking Doors Down is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space, so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O co and be sure to add the knocking doors down podcast in the how did you hear about podgo section of the application strengthening communities providing resources building awareness empowering youth in need to overcome adversity and achieve success this is what the carlos Vieira foundation is all about through our campaigns the race for autism race to end the stigma and race to be drug free we're able to help so many in need our goal is to provide support to families and children and give these families opportunities that might not normally arise learn more and find out how you can get involved Visit carlosvierafoundation.org today. That's amazing. What did you end up, up going for treatment? Uh, I went to a treatment center, Behavioral Health of the Palm Beaches out in Florida. I went out in Florida. And how many how many days? Was it a standard 30? Did you do a 90 sober no, living? No, afterwards? I did 90 days. I did 90 days, and I also got some assistance with some surgeries that I needed. I got a knee replaced while I was in treatment. I had the other knee uh, scoped. I had some neck surgery done. So those 90 days were were very, very planned out. And I, I'm, very, I'm very grateful to everybody that helped me with that. Yeah. How did you manage after the surgeries and with the pain? Cause obviously- uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't easy. But you know what? They did it. And I found out that you could do it. Yeah. And... Uh, that's all I needed to know. I mean, I was that guy who thought I was going to have to be on opiates the rest of my life. And I thought I was going to have to be on benzos the rest of my life, you know, that I couldn't sleep without them. And, uh, but going through that process in a, in a safe environment of, of rehab, you know, it showed me that you can do it, you know, that other medications that are non narcotic do work. You know, you just got to be open-minded enough to try different things. Absolutely. Well, we're glad to see that that was the inevitable result and that you're able to go out there and be inspirational to so many other people and share. And hopefully, you know, again, you know, it starts with prevention first and then, you know, education. And as you say, intervention, you know, three three great steps of it. Uh, What were some of the most impactful things when you were in rehab that you start unwind because, you know, there, there's not anyone that we speak to and hand raise myself that guilt and shame that is so present in every addict and their actions. How did you reconcile that uh, along with rebuilding relationships with your kids and your wife? Yeah. And, you know, I can remember it was exactly two weeks into the process. They, they took a month detoxing me. My body was so toxic. They really didn't even want to take me, but they they they, they did, and, and and they did it under the pretense that I would take a month to detox. So, but I remember two weeks into the process at eight forty-five on a Wednesday morning, it's fifteen minutes before that first group started. Exactly two weeks in, I can remember sitting at a picnic table, and I, I used to get up every morning and I would write in a notebook how I was feeling, what I was going through, you know, what was going on around me, and I don't know why. I'm not a big writer, but for some reason, it just made me feel better every morning to do that. And this particular morning, I was sobbing uncontrollably. I can't imagine what a 290-pound man sitting in the middle of a rehab campus at a picnic table sobbing uncontrollably looks like, but that was me. And I couldn't get a grip on myself but because I remember thinking all that guilt and shame and that huge wake of destruction that I left back in Houston with my family and my friends and my reputation and everything, you know. And I was having to deal, deal with it for the first time in my life, clean and sober, you know. And uh, I just I, I, I can remember thinking, if this is what being sober feels like, I don't want to have any part of it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get over the obsession to throw down pills every day, too, because I had convinced myself that I was that one guy who needed pills for the rest of my life. And it was like at that very second, all this was going on. And this was my big burning bush moment, my spiritual awakening. It was like somebody came up behind me at that picnic table. And, and draped a warm quilt around my shoulders. And I, and I say quilt because I remember feeling weight and warmth on my shoulders. Mm-hmm. And it was like at that very second, all that was going on, that was all lifted off of me. And 
I suddenly got the confidence to do that. I knew that I could do this. Not only could I do this, but I, I realized I had to make it mean something. All, all, all the pain that I had caused everybody in my life back in, in Texas, I had to make it mean something. And that was kind of the birth of Athletes in Recovery, of Pro Athletes in Recovery, was at that picnic table. I didn't know what I was going to do, how I was going to do it. I just knew that I wanted to make everything that I'd been through mean something. And um, I knew that there was other guys out there that I'd played with and against that were doing the same thing I was doing. And for whatever reason, guilt, shame, pride, ego, weren't putting up their hands and asking for help or like me and they didn't think there was any resources available. So I wanted to make sure that I got the word out to everybody that there were resources available, that there was help, that they're not the only ones out there doing it. There's a lot of us that are out there doing that. And all you got to do is raise your hand. So that was kind of the birth of uh, pro athletes in recovery at that picnic table, even though I didn't know what it was going to be. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Okay. It's, but th there was a lot of uh, layers to the onion I had to peel back. There was a lot, you know, not, sure. of course, the guilt and shame, but the loss of identity. It was like I had to grieve oh. the death of Randy Grimes, the football player, because you know, I, I had allowed football to become who I was instead of just something I was really good at. Sure. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I had to grieve that death that I was not Randy Grimes, a football player anymore. I had to reinvent myself, redefine myself. And uh, there was uh, uh, it was a long process. I needed every day of that 90 days. Yeah. I, what was a big part of that? Because, I, A, you know, you kind of have a twofold. Is it? You're, you know, still grieving that that change of going from being a pro athlete to, you know, normal living as whatever you can qualify normal as. Plus an addict and addicts, we don't want to change anything. So you're not only you got the twofold of self-identifying as an a athlete and an addict all at one time. And you have to wipe both of those away. So what was the process? You know, when I pulled up, when I pulled up to the treatment center that night, September twenty second, two thousand nine, I was leaning against the door, and somebody opened the door at the treatment center, and I just fell out. I was so sick and uh, and broken, and I, and I fell out onto the pavement. And there was about another thirty feet to crawl through the door, or, or or to make it through the door into the. And I crawled on all fours from the car through that door, and. Um, I like to think that that same desperation that I had crawling through the door that night, I like to think that I kept that, that full 90 days mm. and that, you know, I, I finally was broken and I was finally surrendered enough to say, you know what, my way's not working. It never has worked. It's gotten me here. So I'm ready to listen to suggestions. I want to know how other people have done this, you know, because I want my life back. I want my family back. I want my reputation back. And, um, you know, I like to think that even today, you know, nearly 12 years later, that I still have that same gift of desperation that I crawled in the door that night with. And, and you know, I think I'm a pretty badass. I think I've been in a lot of battles and not only at Baylor, but 10 years in the pros. And I've won most of those battles. You don't get to stay in the league that long unless you're winning most of those battles. Sure. But crawling through the door that night that was the toughest thing i ever did man i can i can only imagine not just uh, physically mentally emotionally spiritually on all those levels and, and it was you know there, like i said there was a lot of layers to the onion that had to be peeled back i i mean i could have stayed a year in treatment and probably not got everything done. But, you know, I did everything they asked me to do after treatment. I continued with an outpatient therapist every week. You know, I moved into sober living oh, yeah. uh, here in Florida, even though I had a family back in, in Houston. Uh, I stayed out here. I, I did everything they told me to do. I, I did everything that they said would help me be successful at staying sober. And uh, I was willing. I was still desperate when uh, when that door hit me in the ass after 90 days. I was still desperate to continue on this. And, you know, I would come back even though I was discharged and I was not even a, a client anymore of the facility. I would come back on campus every day. And just pick up cigarette butts. Huh. 
just because I needed those people that were my new safe people. I needed them to hear my, my voice and see my eyes every day. I needed that accountability for a long time because, you know, we as athletes, that's what we, we thrive on the, on, on accountability, on, on structure, on itineraries, you know, mm-hmm. we want to prove ourselves on a daily basis. And I needed to continue to do that with them. And yeah, I'd, I'd come back on campus and just pick up cigarette butts. I'd walk around and they would let me. And uh, I was in my safe place. Yeah, which is totally necessary. So you said that, you know, in there, the, the antithesis for pro athletes in recovery, how, how did it come about? Was it a, something where you got enough long-term sobriety and you just looked at the misses and went, this is what I want to do? <laughs> yeah. Well, like I told you, there was not a, uh, there was no resources out there for former players back when I came in. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. I started talking with some friends that I had at the NFL Alumni Association. Uh, they were splitting off. They were going to form a, a new division called the Player Care Foundation. They were going to start reaching out to former players. Uh, they knew that I was already reaching out to former players. And so we just kind of had a little partnership. And, you know, for the next, well, even today, all the way through today, you know, we still are getting the word out that there's resources available, there's help out there. All you got to do is put your hand up and ask for help. You know, uh, all the talking that I've done and all the the traveling that I've done in the last 12 years is, uh, you know, all about that. And that's just getting the word out to these guys that they don't have to suffer in silence anymore, that there is help and hope out there, that, that you put your guilt and shame aside, you know, put your egos aside and ask, put your hand up and ask for help, that it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to not ask for help. Sure. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful. Uh, not only we were so successful with, with, with that program that, that, uh, MLB came on board with the baseball nice. assistance team, uh, you know, uh, NBA, the NHL, the, the jockeys deal, former jockeys were coming in, you know, um, motorsports safety group, former race car drivers, uh, right here in the, in the heart of, of of, of golf world, you know, had former golfers coming in and it was just pretty much athletes, former athletes from every sport. I've had the uh, opportunity to get to know and, and help through this process. That's too. I cool. love it. I love it. It's, it's, uh, you know what, it's, it's, it's been a way for me to stay connected to the game that I love so much Yeah. yeah. that gave me so much, you know, I never thought it would be like this, but <laughs> it is what it is, right? Boy, yeah, absolutely. Boy, that, you know, what, what was it? We were talking with Lamar Odom, Mikey, and he said, uh, something, it was referencing his grandma where she said something like, oh, you want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans, you know? And, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. And That's we right. Just, and we just never know how it's going to turn out. I certainly wouldn't have thought of 20 years ago from a radio broadcasting career that this is what I'd be doing on this day. So, you know. There you go. Got to love it. Who would have uh, I say the same thing, you know. Who would have ever thought it? But now looking back, you know, it's almost like God was using – those 10 years in the NFL to prepare me for what I do now, because Absolutely. this is, this is life and death stuff here. Yeah. I mean, this is no joke. There's, there's guys that are committing suicide. There's guys that are drinking themselves to death and, uh, and then obviously not just athletes, this is everybody. And, uh, you know, this is we're we're, we're in a pandemic within a pandemic and, uh, it's only getting worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And it's been the unfortunate thing of the global pandemic. And I'm sure, you know, not looking at stats of other countries and stuff, but the the amount of relapse that we've seen of folks, too, has just been uh, incredibly disheartening. I know I had to, like, get back at, like, active with the group sponsor during these times, you know. Well, and, and what's the one thing they're telling everybody to do is the one thing we tell everybody not to do, and that's isolate. Mm-hmm. Yep. We you do. know, it's the worst thing you can do in recovery. And, uh, you know, thank God for Zoom, but it's not the same. No. You know, that without that human interaction, it's just not the same. Without sitting down with your sponsor, you know, at least once a week, it's just not the same. And, uh, you know, we, we all have just done the best we can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, speaking of that uh, 10 years of uh, NFL, uh, Mikey, a little bit of – can we get a little NFL talk in here, Randy? I'm game. All Let's right. 
Randy, how do you feel about the new rules implicated as opposed to the lack of rules back then? I'm talking helmet to helmet, hit on a defenseless player, because people like Ronnie Lott would have been out of a job in today's game. Yeah, we were watching the videos on your RandyGrimesSpeaks.com website. Folks, go there definitely for more on Randy, but to watch some of those videos as well. So we were like, oh, we got to ask him about that. <laughs> It's a different game now, that's Absolutely. for sure. Absolutely. You know, there, there's a lot of guys that are protected, and you're right. Guys like Ronnie Lott, you know, Van McElroy, guys that, you know, those hard-hitting uh, uh, free safeties, you know, they, they, they wouldn't be in the game anymore, oh, yeah. or they wouldn't be. They, they'd be extra penalized. They'd so be getting fined every other week. So huh? They'd be getting fined every other week. They'd be out of money. Yeah. You're, you're exactly right. And the game has just changed so much. And I, I, you know, my, my hope is that it doesn't get too watered down. I think we can overthink this too much and, and penalize these guys too much to where it's not a, even a watchable, you know, product anymore. But um, hopefully it doesn't get to that, that point. I, you know, it's getting close, though. It's getting close. Well, and and I, I just want the officiating to be consistent. Exactly. Week after week. Exactly. Because, yeah. you know, you get a you get a young Jimmy Garoppolo as opposed to like a Drew Brees or a Tom Brady. They're they're not going to give Jimmy G this or not even Jimmy G because I'm a Niners fan. I'll sound biased. We'll say uh, Derek Carr or something like that. They're not going to give Derek Carr the same call they would Drew Brees or Tom Brady. And I, I completely disagree with that. You got to be consistent. If you're going to throw the flag here, then you got to throw the flag there as well. It, it's just being fair. There was a clip with Cam Newton. He went up to a ref and said something, and the ref was like, "You're too young for that call." And he said it dead serious. He wasn't being sarcastic or joking. He said, "You're too young for that call," and kept walking. And it's like, how the fuck is that right? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even like Cam Newton or the Panthers at the time or the Patriots now. <laughs> but it's just well, like, you know, like I said, the games have changed a lot, and uh, you know, we and and to my point, uh, the consistency with with the with the uh, umpiring is, is is it's got to get better. Absolutely, I completely. And that's not just in the NFL. That's with the final, you know, with March Madness too. Oh sure. I mean, just the consistency in the different ref crews. You know, oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Do we not have a three-second rule anymore or traveling? You know, I see guys walking down the court with the ball. Yeah. Well, and some are targeted. I mean, you get like the Draymond Greens. That guy gets teed up every game he's in. It's almost like the refs specifically just watch him. And in you football, yeah, 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 it's like they're like, I know he's going to do something stupid. I'm just waiting for it. <laughs> if he sneezes and doesn't say bless you, tee up. Get out of here. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's definitely well, got to be a load. But, and sometimes guys get targets on their back. You know, I think about Sue with the Bucks. You oh, know, yeah. The defensive lineman, you yep. know, and he got a really nasty reputation, and now all eyes are on him all the time. You Absolutely. Know? So yeah. you got to be careful with, uh, with uh, as a player, too what kind of reputation you get you just gotta yeah you're absolutely right and when i think of guys with targets on their backs i'm forgive me it's biased it's all niners but i think of dante whitner dante whitner used to light people up all the time and that dude would get flagged 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 every play and i'm just like dude football's a contact sport you know what you signed up for when you put those pads on you're gonna get your clock rocked sometimes and just because you got hit really well doesn't mean it's a flag if i put my shoulder to your chest that's clean but being that his head flung back nope that's a flag hit on a defenseless player it's like so what do you want me to do two-hand touch you know right it's just and and sometimes it's almost impossible to not lead with your helmet you know i mean it's got as you're coming Uh, your head's going to always hit first. You know, if you start getting guys hitting with their shoulders first, you're going to have stingers. You're going to have guys get hurt. Oh, yeah, hurt absolutely. And, and ending careers out there. Yeah, a concussion's going to end your career. A broken neck's going to end your career. But I think uh, that's the way the game's always been played. And yeah. uh, you start start trying to tackle with your shoulder, and then that's a whole other set of problems. And, you know, the technology they put into the helmets and stuff now for concussion protocol, I think that's great. That's awesome that they're doing that. I mean, it's – you got to because that affects your mental health further down the line. You know what I'm saying? So I'm glad that they're doing that. But also at the same time, like you said, it can't be watered down too much. I mean, it still right. is a contact sport. You know, it, it's 
it's pretty gnarly. So, and you played in the years where, hey, man, that's that's fair game. No flag there. That was clean. You know what I mean? So props to you for being 10 years in that. Because those highlights were like, holy shit. Oh, the highlights, I'm like, goodness gracious. I was telling off Jason. I'm like, that's a flag. Flag. Helmet to helmet. Hit on defenseless player. You can't do any of that nowadays. All of that's flags now. Uh, I can remember my first start was in Texas Stadium, and I had to play left guard. Uh, this was my rookie year. Uh, our left guard went down during warm-ups. Oh, shit. Because he, I, I, the, the reason he went down is because he didn't want to have to play against Randy White. <laughs> but my first start in the NFL was at left guard. I never played guard in my life, and I had to play against Randy White. And that's back when they could just head slap you and club yep. you. And, yep. I mean, anything goes. And, of course, Holden, they were flagging that back then. Yeah. But, man, defensive lineman could get away with anything. And I can remember him head slapping me and clubbing me. And, and I can remember him helping me up one time off the field and asking me to quit calling him sir. And I said, <laughs> yes, I will. I said, yes, sir, I'll quit calling you sir. And uh, – but, you know, that's the way we played the game back then. I grew up a lot that day. You know, I, I became a, a man, a, a, a real NFLer that day because of Randy White and what, what, I had to, what I had to do to not embarrass myself. Kind of welcoming you in, huh? Exactly. <laughs> Welcome to the club, kid. Yeah, you do, wanted – oh, go ahead. Before we get to uh, – we do some fun random questions and leave you with the last word, but uh, do you have any other uh, – some of your favorite NFL moments and stories that you could share with us? Uh, you know, I can remember I, after that story right there. Matter of fact, the very next year we played in Canton at the Hall of Fame game, uh, played Seattle or whoever anyway – but we got off the, the bus as a team and we toured the Hall of Fame. And as we turned the corner, there was a room set up and it had, a, a, you know, all the sports writers and photographers from the year before would submit their pictures and the best ones would be in the Hall of Fame. And there was this mural that was probably 10 by 10, 10 feet by 10 feet hanging on the wall there. And it was a picture of that game of Randy White. My helmet was turned sideways. I was looking out the ear hole. He's reaching over me. I'm all crumbled up, and he's grabbing the quarterback. And that picture was the picture of the year that year for the Hall of Fame. And I had all my teammates with me. We all just stood around that picture, you know, and looking at it. It took me – it took me the rest of my career to downplay that. But, you know, I had that, you know, but I played with such great guys like Steve DeBerg and, oh, and uh, yeah. Jack Thompson and, and uh, uh, Steve Young. You know, yeah. that was one of the funnest years I had was blocking for that guy, which we never knew where he was because he was always running oh, around yeah. trying to make something happen. Absolutely. He was supposed to have been in the pocket seven yards deep, but no, he's out running around. I freaking love that we'd guy, have man. To take these, <laughs> we'd have to take these eyes on the back of our helmets so we could try to keep up with where he was back there. Yeah. But uh, and, and even Vinny, you know, we I had a great time with Vinny. Vinny, Vinny was a better quarterback than he got credit for. Hmm. He just didn't have the coaching when he came to the Bucks. He didn't have that great quarterback counselor you know somebody that could really teach him the game they just gave him a playbook stuck him in the huddle and told him to be the heisman trophy winner you know and that was tough yeah and but he went on to have a long career a great career and so i got to play with a lot of people i got to play with a lot of great players a lot of hall of famers and you know i'm just you know i I wouldn't trip even though Everything that happened to me was because of my time in the NFL. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Sure. You know, it was the best days of my life. And people ask me all the time what I miss most about football, and it's not it's not the game. I miss the locker room. Yeah. I miss sitting around and bullshitting with the guys. You know, us offensive linemen, we used to come over to the stadium four hours before everybody else, and we'd sit around and bullshit and tape our pads and tape our – tape our jerseys to our pads and make sure there was no loose material anywhere. You know, it was a, it was a, uh, a routine, you know, and uh, I miss all those times with everybody, but that's what recovery given me back to is an opportunity to be with like-minded people to all trying to do 
accomplish the same thing. So I'm grateful for that. I found my locker room again. Absolutely. Heck yeah. That's awesome. I love that. Well, uh, Randy, before we give you the uh, final words, we like to jump into some fun random questions here, just to have fun with them. Uh, let's see. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, Copenhagen and chocolate. <laughs> I I have a chewing tobacco habit, too. Uh, I need to give them both. Uh, hanging out on the beach too much, too. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's, why, that's why my skin looks like a catcher's mitt. <laughs> no, we're just jealous. We're in Central California. People go, by the beach? No, we're where it's dismal. You're in California? Oh, how's the beach? It's like, I don't know, bro. It's like a two-hour drive for me. I'm not at the beach. <laughs> hey, my brother's moving to Tampa soon. I'll have to hit you up and, and, and meet up with you. But uh, I, I, I envy the beach. I grew up near Monterey, so I, I love the beach time. What do you got, Mikey? All right. If you were stuck on a deserted island and you could take one movie and one album with you, what would those be? Well. I know. It would be a Fleetwood Mac album. Okay. I think nice. Fleetwood. And, um, wow, I don't know. I guess, uh, you know, it'd probably be like Saving Private Ryan. I love that movie. Oh, yeah. That would be a tough one, though. That Every time, man, they storm the beach, it's, oh, tears. I know. Yeah. And if I and if I have to say you're going the Fleetwood Mac route, I don't know, rumors, kind of hard to pass that one up. You can't go wrong with rumors, right? Absolutely. All right. Uh, let's see. Do, 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 um, what's, the, what's your favorite hobby now for yourself? Uh, you know what? I've got four grandkids now. Awesome. You know what? I wrote a book recently, too. And uh, let me tell you about this book. Yeah, it's, it's that final editing now. It's called Off Center. Hopefully it'll be out this summer. And, 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 and the fact that I wrote a book is not what I want to talk about. I want to I, I asked my family to help me cool. write this book. And and it turned out to be a real healing process for the entire Grimes family. So whether or not the book sells a copy or not, I could care less. Uh, the The effects of it and the platform that it gave everybody to tell their side of, of what happened with me and 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 and, and what I went through, it, it was a it was a beautiful healing experience. So you know, still working on the book. It'll be coming out hopefully this summer. Uh, Love it. You know that that's been a that's been a savior. Hanging out with the grandkids and and doing beach stuff, man. That's that's what we do. I love it. That's well, awesome. After this chat, consider at least two books of yours being purchased, man. We'll this definitely is, get in on that. Yeah, and I love. I'll that. send you guys. I'll send you guys some. Right. I'll take care of you. Right. I love that format because we had spoken with Tom Farley, Chris Farley's brother, and when he did the book on Tom on on Chris, excuse me, he you know he went and spoke with different cast members of Tom's or of Chris's that that were friends of his and stuff, and and so it gave this totally different perspective, and it was really cathartic and healing for for him. And I've seen some other formats that way, so that's really cool that. You know that gift of bringing the family and the union together. It's it's cool when you're you're sitting there. Got me a little emotional saying, "Boy, did my first grandkid didn't even get that experience." Now here you are, four grandkids, and right. you know, the beach time and all the great stuff. It's so so cool, and it's that power of recovery and how people can really make a better life than what they had before. That's right. That's right. There's hope and help out there. Yes, sir. Absolutely. All right. If they were to make a movie about Ooh. you, Randy Grimes, who would you cast to play you? That's oh, cool. The Rock. Oh, course. yeah, The Rock. Putting images. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's like my, my, my doppelganger, my twin. Hey, I, I thought it was him when we first got on this call. Right. I was I like, thought, Dwayne? Oh. <laughs> Dwayne. Dwayne Johnson. That's what are you right. doing here, Dwayne? That, that would be cool. <laughs> Uh, he was a defensive tackle, though, wasn't he? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, he was okay. at Miami. Yeah, Miami. Uh, very cool. All right, let's see. We'll go uh, one more of these here. It's pretty fun. Um, ooh, here's a good one. If you could have dinner with just one person, living or not, who would it be and why? Wow. Wow. 
mom would get mad at me if I didn't say like Jesus or something. You know, that's that's like a, that's like going too far. I, you know, probably like uh, I think it would probably be Reagan, Ronald Reagan. Mm, interesting. Mm. Why is that? I don't know. I just. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I, I just kind of wanted to hear his takes on everything, you know. Yeah, or, yeah for sure. Um, I just want to, especially with everything that's going on right now. I just, how, how would he have handled it? I don't. Just uh, that's, that's just you know off the top of my head. Yeah, uh, that's a good one because I remember uh, vividly as a kid, my mom said for whatever reason when Ronald Reagan got up there and you know, did his speech that I was just glued to the TV. She's like, you were so fascinated with Ronald Reagan. I'm like, well, my grandpa forced me to watch all of his movies too. So, you know, it's kind of like, well, that's the guy in the movie and he could be president. That's pretty cool. Uh, you know, there's so many cool people out there, you know, like John Wayne and, uh, you know, there's uh, some, some great coaches mm-hmm. that I'd like to pick their brain. So, I mean, we could go all day with them with who we'd like to have our that last meal with. Oh, sure. God, yes, absolutely. Uh, do you want to do any more, Mike, or are we going to give Randy the last word? Let's give Randy the last word. So what we ask, Randy, is that, you know, through all of your experience, amazing work you're doing with pro athletes in recovery, as well as uh, randygrimespeaks.com. Uh, people go there for, for more on Randy. Hopefully we get these speaking engagements in person going again soon, but, of course, you're still so active in the recovery community and, and reaching out to uh, people in need. Um, what are some encouraging words through your experience that you can give to anyone who's seeking recovery, in recovery, or even their loved ones? Well, and, and let me start by saying that you can also find me at proathletesinrecovery.org. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like you said, randygrimespeaks.com. Of course, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm uh, uh, on Twitter, Sober Center 60. Uh, if you can't find me, then you're not trying very hard because I'm everywhere. <laughs> But, you know, my message when I go out and talk is that it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to not ask for help and that there is hope and help out there and that recovery does work. Um, You know, uh, I've I've seen hundreds and hundreds, thousands of cases, you know, people getting their lives back, their families back, uh, their reputations back. You know, everything that I wanted that day when I was sitting at that picnic table in the middle of campus and it does work and that there is hope and help out there. Absolutely. Well, Mr. Randy Grimes, this has uh, been a real honor and a pleasure to speak with you. We can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you all very much for this opportunity. Randy Grimes. I want, I want, I want to go to Florida. I want to go hang out with him on the beach. He's just a cool fucking guy. I'm down to hang out with him. I don't want to go to Florida, though. I mean, you can come to the West Coast. It's better over here. I like Florida. <laughs> well, it depends on the time of the year when it's like 200% humidity. It sucks And that's what I'm talking about, dude. You go to LA, go to the beach there. It's sunny all the time. It's always sunny in Los Angeles. Uh, but an awesome guy, man. Uh, really appreciate his time and doing the awesome work with uh, Randy Graham Speaks and, of course, you know, helping those pro athletes. Is, uh, you know, it's coming out more and more that Pro athletes, due to injuries, getting hooked on a lot of uh, pain medication, you know? So, Well, and the good thing is, too, now, is they're addressing it yeah. more now. And same with, like, concussion protocol. Like, they're they're doing a lot more to protect the players now, and I, I think it's great. And it's just – it's a damn shame how it used to be when Randy was playing. Like, as he was explaining, the guy would come with a cart and just hand out pills to whoever needed pills – just like nothing and yeah. it's like wow that that's how it was but at the same time like we had already talked about football back then is nowhere near football now this is true you know what i'm saying like helmet to helmet pff, that, that didn't that was totally okay yeah. it's football you get your head ripped off hey that's part of the game but you know so those pain pills i mean i'm not saying it's okay but i get it because yeah. those guys needed it and that's how they made their money they didn't yeah. think about the future or what it was going to lead to but luckily, Randy realized that he had a problem, fixed it, and now doing better than ever. And we thank you guys for listening. Of course, if you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, do us a favor. Make sure that you leave us a five-star rating. Write a review. Helps us out. And uh, whatever platform you listen to us on, if that's Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Google Podcast, iHeart, spread the word. It's easy. 
Just go into the bio for the podcast, hit that little share button, text it to your friends, post it on social media, whatever it is. Help us continue to spread the word, and uh, that's how we continue to ride this wonderful journey. Just do it, dude. Anything else, Mikey? No, I'm going home. On that note, keep knocking doors down. Fifty-one fifty is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams, and working hard. Always striving to make those dreams a reality. We believe life's too short to sit back and say, "What if?" Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being fifty-one fifty is committing to that long, hard road ahead that you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's fifty-one fifty. If you're living the fifty-one fifty lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. Listeners of Knocking Doors Down, head over to 5150LTM.com. That website again, 51FIFTYLTM. This podcast contains the views and opinions of the Knocking Doors Down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website site are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.